I um, have only the slightest uh, passing knowledge about anything we're going to talk about tonight. So I'm ready. I'm trying to remember um, uh, what the perfume was that all the girls wore when I was that Max age. Body spray. Uh, it was the, it was a female equivalent. It was maybe it was something by Prince Machabelli. Oh. Was it um, oil of Olay? Uh, no, that's what my grandma uh, wore, which was much sexier. Were they the one that had the ad where they like, ask Oriental women their age? No one can tell because it's made with like pearl <laughs> butter, oil of Olay. <laughs> Pearl butter. <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd, uh, I'd, uh, that sounds kind of familiar. Ask Oriental women their age. <laughs> that's all I. That's all I ever do. Yeah. Well, sure. Um, I got. Let me find this. We do find what, this real quick. There's this guy on Twitter. I just started recording. By the way, anyway, I don't know if you want to, but. Um, I started a little bit before, okay, so this, this guy. Where is this guy? Oh, here he is. <laughs> yeah, this guy on Twitter and his whole. Oh, of course, when I want to find something for you, I want to open. Uh, Robert Brummett. Uh, okay, his whole thing is a uh, retired from the army, black belt in Sundu Seoul, and brown belt in Jujitsu. Spelled out as three three separate um, syllables. I love playing guitar, music, and Asian women. <laughs> his um, picture is just like his <laughs> picture is just him like holding an AR-15 with a scope on it, standing in front of his TV with like a really low popcorn ceiling above him, and he's good. At least he's honest that he enjoys playing. Um, Asian <laughs> <women>. <laughs> and he's like, of course, just bald and like droopy faced, and has like the worst like pubic facial hair. I also found this. That, exactly. I found uh, Representative George Lang of Ohio has. I think he's really figured out um, the dank memes for the kids. He's retweeted a clip of Red Skelton kind of earnestly holding a hat, <laughs> and the caption says, "Please watch and retweet Red Skelton video explains our hashtag Pledge of Allegiance." <laughs> <laughs> These young people today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of surprised even you guys know who Red Skelton is. I mean, he's a blast from the he's past. He's a super past. But I also know him because the um, skeleton yard on St. Charles, after every Halloween, one of their really funny skeleton jokes is a skeleton painted red. I just know <laughs> that uh, those those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. So. <laughs> Yeah. That's Red Skelton who said that originally. Or in, in character as Clem Diddlehopper. <laughs> Was that one of his bits? Uh, yeah. I don't remember any of his bits. I think that was his, that was kind of his hobo character. I thought his I hobo character was Red Skelton. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, he was a very sanctimonious fellow. This week's Attica Shrug, the podcast about politics and culture in the South. With me, as always, are Chad Watson. We have been cursed with the reign of gold long enough. And howdy. <laughs> and David Dykes. Howdy, y'all. And uh, I'm Wes Cheek, sitting here in the basement of lovely Tulane University in New Orleans, where we just found out that we're getting uh, the largest announcement, the largest economic Announcement in the history of New Orleans apparently was made today in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. We are getting an affiliate of a broken-off salvage part of Hewlett-Packard. Yay! Mm, thanks. 
We're pretty excited. The city is saved. The city is saved. It's bigger. It has more impact on the city. It's a bigger economic announcement, in fact, than the 1803 uh, acquisition of New Orleans by the United States of America. Is it a bigger economic statement than a hurricane is coming? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's bigger than the decision to not locate the Port of New Orleans in Manchac. Is it, is it a bigger economic decision than, oh, no, I don't think the pumps are working? <laughs> is, is it a bigger, bigger economic, economic decision de- than redlining? <laughs> it's a bigger economic decision than the refugees from the Haitian slave revolt moving here. Uh, what about the refugees from Vietnam? It's a bigger economic decision than uh, than uh, domestic slavery. <laughs> okay, you. That's pretty big. <laughs> That's big. Yeah, it's two thousand two thousand jobs. Um, the great part is, I can't, oh, it's like wait, somebody I got one more. Abrasions. Okay, I got one more. Is it a bigger economic decision than bulldozing um, the red light district? <laughs> well, that's complicated because that helped create jazz. Did you say jobs? Yeah, jobs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's what they're saying. I forget. I've already forgot the name of the company. It's like NXS. I think it's NXS. It's the name of the company. And their documents, like, from a few months ago, like, they're located in Virginia right now, and they said... We need to make our company more efficient by having cheaper operating costs and lower wages. And so now New Orleans is like, yay, come on down. <laughs> is it just and a it, part I, of the, um, is it just a part of the, it's the, it's the factory where they put all the dangerous chemicals into the computer? Is that? I think so. I think it's the one that requires children with little baby fingers <laughs> to install the dangerous chemicals into the computers. Uh, yeah, and... Yeah, and everyone, but they'll have a higher, those babies will have a higher wage than everyone who works in the service industry here. So we'll have to find new housing. (laughs) Everybody's moving to the West Bank. You you get them baby wages. (laughs) (laughs) I was on the West Bank for the first time in forever this weekend. What's going on on the West Bank? I went to to the Wank. Um... There was, in the New Orleans DSA's uh, very successful um, Give Me a Break Light series, where we give people, replace their brake lights for free, uh, was out in Harvey, because that area has, like, you know, the highest arrest rate in the country, and kind of the mission of the free brake light replacements to try to keep people from getting arrested. So I went out there to help out with that, and it was... It was good. It was nice to be out there. I saw two armadillos walking around on the side of the road. Were they um, holding hands? They were not because they both have rabies and they know that. Mm-hmm. Leprosy, uh, I think, is the um, disease oh, of choice. Oh, leprosy? Oh, yeah. Shit. I got it wrong. Yes. Leprosy. Um, I know that their defense mechanism is to jump six feet straight in the air, and that's why you see so many dead ones on the interstate. Because they <laughs> fire themselves into the undercarriage of trucks. That's my defense mechanism, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're actually one foot tall? Yeah, yeah. I'm just you're jumping. Terrified. I'm a constant blur. <laughs> yeah. I have leprosy, so... That's why you have to wear big clothes, <laughs> is because you're kind of just hovering around. <laughs> um, so speaking of the DSA... Yeah. That's my segue into talking about the elections. Oh, okay. Are we going to do a happy circle before we do sad circle? Um, oh. Do we have a sad circle? Well, I was going to do the whole Roy Moore thing, which is sad for human beings. Um, yeah, up to a point. Yeah. It's I mean, a net, to it's me, the, a net positive. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is that like, um, uh, I don't think he was, that there was a chance he was going to lose. Yeah. And now there is a chance he's going to lose. Yeah. Yeah, there's a definite chance. Like, he made a bunch of other people lose out, though, already. Um, well, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. well, okay, we can talk about the DSA stuff, because I am, uh, yeah, I'm super happy with it. So today, um, 
a kind of career Democratic operative named Elizabeth Rogers had a bit of a Twitter meltdown, uh, along with Neera Tandon, another career Democratic operative, because they're really upset that the DSA did so well in electoral politics uh, this past week, <clears throat> which is kind of surprising and also kind of not surprising if you've ever worked in the Democratic Party and know that their kind of uh, favorite thing is to accomplish absolutely nothing and then pat themselves on the back a whole lot. So um, Elizabeth Rogers was saying today how how abs- how lazy the DSA was, the lazy, just a bunch of lazy, lazy people trying to make the Democratic Party do everything for them, and that how this last election wasn't, wasn't anything about the DSA, it was all Democratic stuff. So anyway, uh, fuck her. Uh, but so yeah, it was a great... It was a great week. We had some real standout uh, electoral successes. Uh, so before I start naming them, was there any particular favorite of you guys that came from this week? Uh, because I'm not living in the U.S., I wasn't mm-hmm. following, because, and it was all uh, pretty much local elections, I wasn't mm-hmm. following as closely as I generally do for Elections is not even an off-year election. It's off-off year. I was right. really encouraged by just the general fact that there does seem to be some backlash, which I was afraid there wouldn't be. I was afraid that people would just be so completely discouraged. But the trend seems to be that the left is building more of a local-level uh, mm-hmm. game plan than they had before, and that it's mm-hmm. successful. And in kind of surprising places, which is especially nice... Because a lot of those places, which are a lot of them are in the South, seems like it makes perfect sense to me. But um, uh, never really took off before. Yeah, I mean, of course, I agree with all that, and we'll get into it more. But like, uh, you guys had a great success with a city council member in Knoxville who's a yes. DSA member in one. Yes, we did. Um, I think her name is uh, Sima Singh Perez. Um, yeah, she is a, a DSA member, and she is part of this group of. Uh, it's called the City Council Movement, and it's mm-hmm. uh, trying to build. Uh, it's like a. It's not. I mean, she's a member of the DSA, but this is sort of like a. D, um, I don't know if it's a DSA style group, but trying to build. Um, uh, civic engagement uh, on the sort of a grassroots, uh, trying to get the sort of like career politicians out of city council, and they ran, um, they ran an, another, they ran a couple of other people who did what is who did not. What, um, <laughs> did the uh, Legend of Zelda just invade the podcast? <laughs> what was that? Was that me? Did and I- that was just that was my phone ringing. Oh, okay. oh, that was Link. Link just showed up. <laughs> he showed up. That was my favorite victim. Link's back. Um, <laughs> Link won the uh, for city council. Yeah, and the Ocarina City Council. And she is a yeah. She's a not. Uh, <laughs> she's a Knoxville. I don't. She's not native, but she spent a lot of uh, time in. She's uh, of Indian descent, and she's spent most of her life in Knoxville and lives in. It's kind of like the area that she, the district that she's representing is sort of the western part, but not like when we think of West Knoxville, we think of uh, the Westtown Mall. Yeah, Westtown Mall, but it's more kind of like northwestern Knoxville, uh, kind of like toward Carnes, sort of the Carnes area for all you Carnes fans uh, out there listening. Yeah, um, Michael Wong and uh, yeah, Michael Wong and Linnea, yeah, holding it down. <laughs> uh, so, which is kind of a, it's not a like. It's uh, sort of more of a mixed uh, sort of economic area. There's uh, this is a lot of isn't there a lot of like Oak Ridge commuters in cars? Yeah, is there's a lot of Oak Ridge commuter. It's more almost rural. I mean, it's in. Um, I think man, like Carnes is like if you talk about I don't know if you're a Carnes nerd, like Carnes is actually outside <laughs> of the city. Um, but this is sort of like it gets kind of like the suburbs start to uh, kind of thin out, and you get more farmland, but. Not anymore. Like Knoxville is sort of experiencing uh, kind of rapid growth, and I think that's kind of something that she talked about a lot in a lot of her uh, campaign was that people that live in Knoxville can no longer people that are from Knoxville can no longer afford mm-hmm. to live in Knoxville because of 
Sounds familiar. Yeah, the the development, and I think that's part of like her area is a big area of growth where uh, sort of like they're buying up all the all the cheap land and building fancy subdivisions. Well, this goes to kind of what I was hitting on like weeks and weeks, maybe months ago, that frustrates me about democratic politics, and I'm glad to see people finally doing is putting kind of development issues and kind of current day neoliberal economic issues into left-wing terms. So I think when you do that, you can win lots and lots of places. It's just the only people who have just spoken to these frustrations have been Republicans who are completely wrong about the causes and the solutions, but they at least say, like, uh, we understand, like, the modern world is kind of upsetting to you. But then they give a whole, you know, list of complete bullshit reasons. But uh, Democrats kind of shy away from saying, like, the way we do economics, like, uh, materially hurts your community, and here's right. how. One of those being development, one of those being, like, kind of the aspenization of your community where you can't afford to live in the community that you work in, all of these things. So it's good to see someone able to kind of harness that. Right, and I think that's what the city, this this group called the City Council Movement was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, good for them, because that's what every, I mean, that's what, and I've been hammering on this for years, I think lots of people have, is that uh, Democrats have to run for every office everywhere. Right. And part of the problem we've had over these years is there's no bench. We have no Democratic bench. So, like, I just know from Florida, like, we failed at the governor's races, even though uh, the Republicans have run the crazy space lizard Rick Scott the last two times. He's won because we haven't been able to put forward any really great Democratic politician, and people ask why. And the reason why is because we haven't been built up any great Democratic bench. And part of that is because, especially in the north part of the state, we just don't run people for city council. We don't run people for school board. We don't run people for the state house. So we have no people right. uh, to, to run, you know, other than like South Florida real estate people. Um, and so we don't, we just don't have people to to run for the offices. And we have to do that all over the country to just build up this bench so when people need to run for higher offices, there's people competing with each other and there's people who are good at this and can do this. So that's good. I think a big part of what's helping Democrats and DSA candidates in the South is that finally they're starting to realize in what ways white flight is a boon to mm. left politics. Um that uh, like I'm sure Tim Burchett, who's the uh, uh, mayor of Knox County, that his head's exploding that a socialist is actually on uh, uh, the Knoxville City Council because it's so conservative out in the county, um, like super conservative, and that leaves Knoxville itself, which is for a southern city pretty liberal. I, I think maybe for an American city pretty liberal. Mm. Because, um, uh, well, for the same reason that New Orleans became much more liberal is not yeah. quite the word for New Orleans, but it, they at least have um, uh, representation that looks like the people who live in the city now uh, for the last right. what, like forty years? Because all yeah. the all the honkies left. Yep, all the honkies moved out so that their kids wouldn't have to go to a public school with a black kid. Um, yeah, mostly. so they could go to like. Holy name of Christ, the bloody redeemer on a stick, private school. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly amazed by the name of the uh, name of the schools out in the parishes. But anyway, um, no, yeah, in some ways it's a good thing. Like, yeah, they uh, white flight means they're out there, living in their boring communities, and uh, we could be here having a city. Of course, that gets into issues of gerrymandering, which are awful too, and which we're trying to beat back, but. But I think like <clears throat> that kind of uh, also being able to address local issues was really great. And we saw with uh, Danica Rome, who's the first transgender woman elected to the Virginia uh, House of Delegates. Um, and, and she was really great in so many ways because she wasn't, I mean, it was apparent she was kind of groundbreaking as a transgender candidate, but she didn't run saying my issue is being transgender. Her issue was kind of local infrastructure and the local kind of road construction. And she mm-hmm. kind of just kept hammering on, on those local issues while being, you know, kind of a very dignified person. And the total bigot Bob Marshall that she was running against um, just looked completely unserious as a politician where he was trying to, he was running on trying to not allow gay people to serve in the National Guard 
and issues like that and the bathroom bill and things like that. Uh, whereas she was running on, yeah, local infrastructure, um, trying to lessen traffic on the local highways, roads, things like that. And I think the ability, um, and I don't, she wasn't a DSA candidate, she was a Democratic candidate, but I think that ability to focus on kind of local issues is, is really great. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, maybe part of what um, the fallout from the Trump, I guess, movement, for lack of a better way to put it, is that I think a lot of people are getting tired of the big ticket issues um, mm-hmm. that are the basically the wedge issues that get pounded and pounded and pounded to the point where people who have nothing whatsoever, like in Blount County, we had some sort of bullshit uh, uh, proposal before the town council or city council, I guess, mayor versus city, um, to uh, condemn gay people and to ask mm-hmm. God to spare the uh, oh, city. Oh, I remember, yeah. And, um, you know, the, nothing that Mayorville does or says or thinks changes the law of the land on that, but they still use right. it, uh, people use it as a way to get elected uh, to local office, even though they can't mm-hmm. determine who gets married and who doesn't get married. That's not at the local level. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe people are starting to get tired of that stuff. And I think a lot of people are just starting to pay more attention to what local government actually does. Or by people, I mean um, people at a broader range of the political spectrum than just the political junkies and the um, machine people. Right. And and so one thing, you know... I've been hammering on for a while. I've said that a few times, but I, oh, so much of this is coming to fruition of things that I'm really glad to see happening in local politics. But so one is just like the people who are running as Democrats, uh, allowing themselves to be actual human beings. So like Danica Rome, the, the transgender woman who, who won is a former journalist who also like plays and sings in a metal band, which is awesome. Uh, if you ever seen the photographs, it's great. Um, so kind of what, you are told in democratic local politics by the, the the people higher up in it is there's a way to run for office, there's a way to do things, and it involves being like you know absolutely kind a of chamber of tar- chamber of commerce type, right? Like just don't rock the boat, don't say anything controversial, like be kind of really positive and upbeat, but don't like kind of outline structural problems, like you know believe that stuff and kind of say it to other Democrats, but get out there and campaign. As like, hey, I'm, there's nothing remarkable about me, blah, blah, blah. And these people are kind of running as themselves, running as being kind of upset with stuff. And, uh, and it seems to be, to be working. And so we're talking about things being hyper-local issues, which is good. But then there's also one great victory in this election, the absolute boy, Lee Carter, who won also for the House of Delegates, who took, delegates, who took a different approach uh, so he is the former Marine and DSA candidate who did not or was not helped at all by the local by the state Democratic Party, who unseated the House whip for the Republicans, Jackson Miller. And not only did he unseat him, he beat him by a nine point spread, 54 to 46, um, even though his opponent was sending out uh, like complete red baiting uh, brochures comparing him to Stalin. And even though the Democratic Party would not support him because they said he was too far left on this stuff. So he took a different approach of saying, of campaigning on really kind of big idea stuff. And so um, there's a Jacobin interview this week that asked him about it. And I thought his answers were great. So they asked him kind of about campaigning on these big issues. And he said, well, it's not just local conditions that I'm focused on, it's material conditions, which I think is a great answer for people. And he says that the thing that kind of set him off was he, when he was in the Marines, he injured himself and he went down to the clinic and got patched up and sent on his way. And that was kind of what happened. And now that he's out of the military working in the private sector, he was injured on the job and it became a fight for him for months to get medical care. And then once he got medical care, he wasn't able to work consistently. So he was let go by his job, but it was uh, a struggle for him to get unemployment or disability or all these things that were so frustrating to him. So he just ran as a complete 
open socialist um, pointing these things out. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and he, he also emphasizes that the, the center of his campaign is kind of building coalition groups. And since Democrats are focused on basically the same things, it makes sense to have a coalition with them. But then he, but that the party leadership wanted him to tone it down, so he ran a campaign without their help, and he won anyway, which is uh, great. And his whole message is about the uh, medical, Medicare for all, and also economic empowerment for working people. So his was also a great victory. Well, I think that um, um, a lot, and I saw in a lot of the larger media outlets uh, that the lesson for Democrats is that being boring is what gets you elected because yeah. they claim that particularly the Virginia elections, um, mm. that it was basically the argument that policy wonks are more likely to be uh, elected, I suppose, than ideologues. Uh, and I'm not sure that that's really the takeaway from the election. Well, there can be plenty of different takeaways. I think a lot of it has to do with you play to your constituency, but the problem is that so many um, uh, political operatives, I guess, don't understand their constituency or who their constituency could be and consistently underestimate them. Yeah, I think that's the, the second point. Very much so. Like they don't they don't think about how to expand that constituency at all, or what kind of like the borders of it are, or that people who aren't considered their constituency could be under certain circumstances. Right. So yeah, I guess like um, since we're already talking about this, uh, you guys already know. I don't know how many of our listeners know. Like uh, to the last election cycle, when I was thinking about running for. The House of Representatives from Florida in the Florida First, um, like I went through a lot of the same stuff, and it's so refreshing to see these people who were able to do what it would have been nice to do, doing the things I was suggesting doing. So it's great to know that that kind of um, campaign can work. So I'll just briefly go go through that. So when I when I thought I was going to run or was trying to run, one of the most frustrating things to me was that. Um, the immediate question that I was asked by the Democratic Party was, how much money can you raise, like, right now? And, you know, that's not, a, that's not a, the wrong question. It's a practical concern. But it started to be that it was demanding of me that I either needed rich friends or rich fr- family to just start pouring this money in, and that that was the way that you ran a campaign, and so I would keep making the argument back, well, that's not really what I'm looking to do. That's not really what I'm interested in doing. And then I would keep being told, but that's the way it's done. That's how those are the people that move up to the party. It's about how much like money you can raise. And um, that's not really anything that I'm interested in or particularly good at. So that became a bone of contention. Another was very much like Lee Carter wanting to say, I'm about these working class issues and being told, well, maybe not that so much. Maybe you want to tone down that a little bit to get elected. And my kind of stance the whole time was like, look, I don't think I'm going to get elected anyway. And no matter how you campaign as a Democrat in these areas, you're going to be called a Maoist at best. So why not run as far left as you feel like running and see what you can pick up? Um, and it seems like Lee Carter and other candidates did that and were able to, to pick up things. Um, I think that, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the whole Donna Brazil thing, which is much more complicated than people who were very angry at Hillary wanted it to be, who kind of right. took it all completely at face value, as if she were right. some sort of Democratic outsider who had just uncovered some sort of huge scandal that putting, that. Yeah. that putting money into the Democratic Party actually made them more supportive of you. Uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to every other political situation in the country. But, um, yeah, the idea that, that um, the main job of politicians is raising money for election and re-election isn't new, but it's discouraging. Well, it also shows you that that's the kind of people you're bringing in, right? And so that's when I talk about building a bench, like you're building a bench of people who fundraise, and oftentimes those are people, you're building a bench of people who are independently wealthy, Um and so if that's who you're building the bench, like, then how are they going to address working class concerns? You might get lucky and they're like, you know, 
there are wealthy people who are very good at, at voicing those concerns, but it's not necessarily what you're going to get. Yeah, and the Donna Brazil stuff just illustrated, uh, I mean, a lot of what we already, I mean, a lot of what we already knew or thought we knew about the uh, Democrat, you know, it's, it's just all about money. And even, like, I guess, like, I remember um, John Delaney was on, not, was it John? No, 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 John, John, uh, Rob Delaney was on mm-hmm. Chapo Trap House um, a while back. And he was just talking about, like, I guess he was talking, he had been tweeting a lot about Medicare for all and free health care. And, and his, just his kind of whole thing was he felt bad because he had to vote for Hillary and, like, Sort of like sort of the the third way had lost, and so he should just go for whatever you know. He should just we should just go for his idea was like we should just go for it. We should just go for what we want and mm-hmm. fight for that and go all out. And then I think that was right around the time that you know the Democrats were running, you know, spending record breaking money on John Ossoff in uh, you know right. Atlanta. You know, they were pouring all you know that was their the next great that was going to be their sort of the way back was John Ossoff. Mm. Well, I think a lot of Democrats are afraid that the DSA is going to become what the libertarians are to the Republican Party, which is somebody that they have to compromise with, uh, although uh, uh, most libertarians are pretty amenable to most of the Republican message. And uh, like a lot of people who are very committed to national parties, willing to forgive every transgression against their own values if it's done by their own party. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think, yeah, that the Democrats are the ones who, the, the ones who are, I don't know how many are, but the ones that are uh, made nervous by and kind of on the attack against the DSA are the, yeah, the Chamber of Commerce wing of the party. Well, I think part of it is, too, uh, is that I think the DSA approach and a lot of people in the DSA are better at electoral politics than traditional Democratic operatives, and that threatens a lot of people's uh, position, and that that bothers them. Even if it's not necessarily a paid position, it's their kind of position of strength in local parties, right? So the argument of the local parties is always like, we're practical, we know how to do this, rely on us. And then this last election cycle has showed us, well, that's not true. You lose, and you keep losing. So stop telling us that your approach is practical. Um, So, you know, I think the fact that DSA is starting to demonstrate that we can get people elected is threatening to their their position in that way. They're no longer the arbiters of what is practical or successful. Yeah, that makes sense. So I probably, I don't know how many of these stories I should tell, but I've probably told this story before, and uh, I feel kind of bad about it. But there was a, a few things that made me very wary when I was trying to run for office. One was that I went to a big local Democratic Party with a bunch of the people who I was going to need to make contacts with, be friends with, be fundraisers, for the whole thing to get off the ground. And at this party, I was kind of cornered by this kind of powerful older lady and she was very, very nice, very, very nice, um, very giving of her time. But all she wanted to do was talk to me about the Clintons and show me pictures that she had gotten to take with the Clintons when they invited her, like, for these kind of photo op things, for being, like, a bundler or a donor, you know. And it was like, well, there's only, you know, I'm not, I'm not that interested. I can't fake being that interested in this for that long. But you have to kind of in that position. And it just, I was just sitting there thinking... We're not going to get anywhere with this. We're not going to get anywhere just when the whole power structure of the party are people in their 60s who they're, the greatest political accomplishment they can think of is getting to hang out with the Clintons. It's like that's, not, that's not enough, and it's not getting us anywhere in the future. Yeah, I, I agree with that, absolutely. The, <clears throat> I mean, the, the Democratic Party, I suppose, I think should be the working class party. It should be the party for people who belong to unions or want to unionize for people who uh, feel like a sense of the mutuality of our fates and of the commonality of our um, concerns about just making a living and where the um, um, uh, future for poor people is 
in a world that increasingly is making poor people and um, uh, eliminating the middle class. Um, right. But it's and so much easier those, to get yeah. to people to throw in their uh, to throw in their lot with the rich, as if the rich are going to reach down and help them out. When you're much more likely to have mutual support from people who are poorer than you are, you know, people who uh, are looking for an opportunity. And um, also, I think that if you really want to throw in your lot with the rich, that generally you tend to the right end of the spectrum. Yeah, and, and you know, but I think that the Democratic Party has to realize that poor people and working class people are also pretty good at smelling bullshit, and you're not delivering on like material reality for them, then they're going to not support you. Right. Which they. And that's what the Democrat. Yeah, that's what's happened to the Democratic Party. Right. But we should say in the other big news of of the election day. Thankfully, the kind of traditional Democratic Party did pull through for the Virginia governor's race and get Northam past Gillespie. And Northam is definitely not the left wing of the party. He voted for George W. Bush twice, I think. But he ran on a fairly progressive platform, even if he was kind of smarmy and noncommittal about um, really ridiculous culture war, right-wing stuff, like sanctuary cities and, and all that. But at least he won. It's very good that he won. Yeah. Because um, yep. I, re- I really think it has been said by other people than me, but I really think that if he had won on the kind of Trump racist platform that he was running as a complete empty suit, you know, Republican Party apparatus bagman, it's his entire career. If he was able to kind of win on this like insane racist platform, then you would have seen imitators through the whole next election cycle. Yeah, which hopefully wouldn't have worked out well for him, but who knows, um, because everybody loves a winner. Right, right, and they would do it, and they would do it. And so now I feel like kind of what they're doing with Ed Gillespie is like he'll try to run that insane racist campaign and then be like, oh, well, that didn't work, and then fade back into the upper echelons of of traditional politics, and no one will say, no, you can't do this anymore. You ran this crazy blood-and-soil campaign. Um but we'll, we'll see. Because it's kind of like, I was thinking back, like, you know, the Willie Horton ad, which is kind of the most notorious racist campaign ad yeah. in history, if we talk about kind of a, in the subtlety of it, right? Like, oh, was it racist? Well, it wasn't, you know, it was, wasn't overtly, it had at least subtext of racism, or the Jesse Helms hands ad, which is, oh, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious to anyone looking for it. But then the Gillespie campaign was like there was no subtext in the least. It was just insane racism. Well, and that's that's apparently playing pretty well these days. Um, Seems to be. Well, among certain demographics and, and a really politically activated um, uh, uh, demographic uh, these days. But I think that all of that stuff is alarming to a lot more than uh, the, the normal people who spend a lot of time talking about politics. I've had, since the election of Trump, I've had more women, for example, who um, I've never heard talk about politics before speak in really alarmed tones about politics to me. And people who I knew that their politics and I knew uh, that they were generally left into the spectrum, but nothing radical or anything. But uh, I think that people are actually scared and especially a lot of women who didn't quite think that this could happen. Mm-hmm. Although it bears noting that even in the Virginia race, uh, Gillespie won with white women. So white men barely, like overwhelmingly with white men, barely with white women, and overwhelmingly not with anybody else. So it's still the non-white people bailing us out of all this trouble. Yeah, and um, that's true for Trump. It's true for... um, Did we talk about that article about the demographics of who voted for Trump? I think we might have... uh, We might have a while ago. I heard the best description I've heard is if you start in the center of a city, drive, keep driving outwards until you hit people who have boats in their driveway. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's when you hit the Trump voter. 
Um, their own boats or boats like disaster boats like uh, Chad has in his driveway? Well, both. I mean, well, both. But mainly their own boats. Because they're essentially like a managerial class, like a managerial class that don't have a high level of college education but make good money. And sort of drink the the Kool-Aid that um, uh, it's a dog-eat-dog world and that they just happen to be have enough character and grit uh, to be the top dog. Mm-hmm. Mm, grits. The being uh, being second string on their high school basketball team taught taught them all they need to know about the hard work and achievement. <laughs> they took that. They took that straight down to the uh, the pressure cleaner dealership, to, uh, and went straight to the regional marketing center, and they they made it work. Fazel uh, Fazel Chevrolet to start to f- to start their own Fazel Chevrolet. Yeah, and now you can see all their pictures of a. Uh, they went on the um, the Buzz Lightyear theme cruise to Haiti. Yeah. <laughs> or, when, or that time they shot a giraffe and. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was uh, having breakfast with my dad at Waffle House like a few years ago, and this guy was just telling us like about all his trips to Africa and what oh. animals he shot. <laughs> and, I was kind of looking at him like I think he realized I was looking at him like with the smile of like I don't know how to react or escape from the situation. And so he kept like kind of extending the list of animals and like yeah, baboon, silverback, child, a small child, a child was up for adoption. <laughs> um. As part of a tribe, they had never seen they had never seen anyone outside of their own outside of their own tribe until who he, hadn't shot them until he <laughs> yeah. shot them. Hey. Speaking right, of children, on, yes, yeah. should we move on to our yeah? Speaking of our, our favorite children, mm-hmm. the series that I'm calling the Fall of the Gadsden Kickboxer. <laughs> <laughs> I've been uh, making up Mountain Goat songs about the Roy Moore um, travesty all week, but I think they're too funny to share in public. <laughs> this you is wouldn't like want to cause anybody not- an injury. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I don't, I don't want to be too heavy on it, but like allegedly, this, this time with him, like listening to the women who were kind of abused by him, it's like taken the funniness out of Roy Moore for me completely. It's like, oh shit, he's He's just even worse than he was before. He's just a horrible, horrible person. I mean, he's, he's like a horrible person beforehand, but... Hmm? He's like Joseph, I was told, from the Bible. <laughs> much, much like yeah. Joseph. My, my, uh, uh, did you not read that about uh, how I, J- Joseph and Mary was, Mary was about 14? And I that, did um, read that, and my, my um, possible friend of the pod, my friend Jason, who's in seminary, I believe, or is a theologian, said, um, I don't think they understand the Bible story. I don't think they understand. Well, the I think they just assumed that they elided the part where Joseph got married drunk and then uh, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, rubbed sort her of, underwear. Yeah, and was a uh, uh, and said, hey man, age of consent. Technically, yeah. I'm not doing anything wrong. That's libertarian Jesus. Yeah. Joseph. And uh you, consent's a construct. The Blaine uh the Blanka Patch uh the Blanka Patch uh tweet that says uh God's breaking news, God steps down to address allegations of impregnating a teenage girl. <laughs> um, wait till they get to all the ones he murdered. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's my favorite detail of this whole story is that in the scene where Roy Moore is is Master Seducer Roy Moore is putting the kind of coup de gras on the whole thing. He disappears for a minute and then emerges in a pair of tidy whities. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, it's so, oh, it's so gross. It's so gross. <laughs> so the whole thing is so gross. A nightmare. The whole thing is so gross. And, you know, before we get to the whole thing, like the one, like if you keep reading the accounts, the one thing that, like, you notice is that, like, Every time one of these young women, like, is kind of alone for a minute, like, Roy Moore just kind of rolls up. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point, that's not an accident that, like, well, I was getting off work, and no one was there to pick me up, and Roy Moore seemed to have his car behind the restaurant. 
behind the dumpster of the restaurant and was asking me for a ride. I said, yeah, Roy Moore didn't show up on accident, right, when you were leaving work. Yeah. Uh, or, like, you know, my mom had a custody hearing and had to leave me alone in the hallway, and Roy Moore just kind of happened to be there and say he would watch me. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 I, I don't know. Oh, uh, God, this guy. So, um... My friend Charles Bethay, who uh, yeah, we'll still try to get on the show at some point, who's writing for the New Yorker now, has a new article out today about the locals were troubled by Roy Moore's interaction with teen girls at the Gadsden Mall. Yeah, there's uh, something about him being banned, right? Getting banned from the Gadsden Mall because he would come cruise around in his uh, uh, well-dressed in slacks and a button-down shirt. And said, like, women remember being, like, warned about him cruising the mall. And that, um, yeah, two police officers who spoke off the record said, like, Roy Moore was, was not allowed in the Gadsden Mall. Or people knew if you saw Roy Moore in the mall to call them, and someone would take care of it. I guess the um, uh, slacks are well-dressed. Uh, if your normal uh, uh, mall wear is tidy whities and a button oh. But it's okay because I read in um, the Times-Picayune today that Roy Moore's kickboxing instructor is vouched for him. Oh, well. (laughs) Solid. His kickboxing instructor and his bodyguard are standing by him. The Gaston champion. Mm -hmm. I think we're okay. But yeah, this whole thing, so I don't know if you're following today's news, but like today is the woman who has the signed yearbook. Did you see that? Yep. And, And so... Um, Beverly Nelson and uh, yeah it's signed by a 32 year old Roy Moore maybe 30 years old at the time and it says like to a beautiful girl or to the prettiest girl I know love Roy Moore D.A. Mm. and so I'm just thinking and you guys like me have worked in education all your lives I don't even think I sign annuals for my students unless one of them asked me particularly to and then I'd still feel weird about it I would definitely never sign any random teenagers annual have you uh no not I've been asked to before and I signed something but yeah. not about how beautiful they were uh, <laughs> yeah yeah it's yeah I've been I think last year might have been the first year I was someone asked me to, to sign and I'm like oh okay Keep reaching for the stars or something. Or you were great to have in class. Right. Mr. Watson. I didn't even sign my full name. I signed Mr. Watson. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not like something... I'm trying to imagine, like, being that age. And at 32, I was teaching junior high school. I'm trying to imagine being that age and, like, seeking out someone, a kid, to sign their annual. And there's no way I can think that it's not weird. Well, I mean, I... I have a a little bit of a qualm. It's like, I think it's worth talking about these things. I think it's worth talking, particularly because of the level of hypocrisy and creepiness Mm -hmm. in somebody who's on a moral high horse all the time. Mm -hmm. But I also am a little wary about how smug and righteous it feels to be sort of piling on you know what I'm saying it's like it's not that uh, that um, it's in no way excuses or is even about his behavior but I don't want to be one of those people who hears that someone anyone has transgressed and then start virtue signaling and um, uh, being um manufacturing outrage it's like I think that it's outrageous and I think it's particularly outrageous coming from somebody in that but with that much kind of local political power and um, just the overall creepiness of it but um, there's a lot of well there's a lot going on these days and a lot of people being called on different sorts of abuse and I think that that's all a good thing and maybe it's just the um, I don't know I was talking today I was talking to my students about for one thing why it was so creepy for somebody that age to be with somebody 
that age, especially in a, what was obviously an attempt at a very casual sexual encounter and just mm-hmm. about how completely psychologically vulnerable a 14-year-old is and that right. even another 14-year-old to be involved with a 14-year-old kind of creeps me out a little bit because yeah. there's so much potential for just, you know, it's a hard time for kids and they're trying to figure stuff out. And anybody who interjects themselves into that situation, whether they're 18 or 14 or 36, uh, there's just a lot of ways to uh, exploit kids at that age. So I'm very protective of them. Um, but also I want to be measured in what I have to say about it and what I think about it and try to avoid huge, broad generalizations about that I understand what everybody's weird relationships are and should be. Well, so, yeah, I wanted to make that point. Like, so I very much, like, think that people's uh, sex lives can be as weird and messed up and whatever as they want them to be. It's not it's not my concern. So, but the, the thing, you know, and, of course, that goes without saying that involves consent and being above the age of consent. But, and, and even, like, so we hear Roy Moore was 32 and was kind of creeping around trying to pick up, like, 19-year-olds. It's like, okay, I don't think that's the best decision for a DA and a career politician to make. There's something going on there. Um, but it's not something that I think I can mm-hmm. say, look, you're wrong in doing something that's legal, buddy. But I think the issue with him is there's something so clearly pathological with, like, his perception of other people's sex lives yeah. Do you know what I mean? That when you see this, you start to think, oh, there's something like really wrong inside of him that where he mm-hmm. he is kind of dysfunctional in that way. And so he perceives everyone else as being dysfunctional. Right, realize, yeah. This is a guy who sat on the state court of Alabama and said that it would be harmful mm-hmm. for a lesbian couple to adopt a child. Right. Well, you know, that's such an easy narrative and such an easy. Um, uh, read on uh, these sort of prim moralists, and yet over and over again, it keeps sort of panning out as the truth. I, um, I know I used to be so. I would say five or ten years ago, I always said that seems too easy to me. Like someone would say, like if there was someone who was like ardently super homophobic, like, yeah. yeah, they were like, oh, you know, he's gay. I'd be like, that's oh come on, that's a little too easy. And then we just keep seeing it again and again and again and again. And it seems like Wells or something there. But it seems to me, like especially with Roy Moore, and you hear about other super conservative politicians, is their, their sexual indiscretions play out so strangely, right? Like, in ways, like I don't... I, just reading these accounts are all we have of Roy Moore, but it seems like these are such kind of not only um, like damaging and exploitative encounters, they're also weird right they're just weird like why why would any 32 year old want to try to like sneak a 14 year old back to his house and then have this kind of clumsy interaction with her that's just gross like what is that um well i think that you know we look at people from bill clinton to all the people Mm -hmm. whose names are starting to come out now Mm-hmm. And one thing and another and find that with the people who are driven to these levels of power, very mm-hmm. often um, there's like an element of kind of dominance and humiliation yeah. and all this other kind yeah. of weird stuff that's that the same thing, it seems, it pushes them to want to become the uh, Supreme Court um, uh, Justice of Alabama. Yeah. It's the yeah, same thing that kind of pushes him sexually, which is about telling other people what to do and dominating other people and being the boss. Yeah, I think that has a lot. I was thinking about the day. I think it has a lot to do with it is that like, I feel like in so many ways, a lot of a seed power to people who want it all the time just because they seem so ridiculous about it. And that goes from like, you know, high school student council all the way up. We think like isn't it kind of weird that you want this so bad? Okay, well, go do that if you want it so bad. And then it ends up we have those people in power, not just politically, but uh, in the world of entertainment, in the world of comedy, in the world of art. Um, As regional sales industries. manager. <laughs> regional sales manager. So we end up with these people in power who are just uh, highly flawed people, um, <laughs> That, that want it, and maybe it just it helps bring out the flaws too. I don't know, but um, 
in any case. Uh, yeah, Roy Moore, a strange guy. But the interesting thing we're seeing now is that, you know, we don't know if he's going to win or lose. Like, it's up in the air. Yeah, but it's a lot closer than it was. I saw a thing right. earlier today where I, I can't remember what the source was, uh, but it was somebody suggesting that uh, Jeff Sessions might mm-hmm. be released from his job at the Justice Department to take back over as senator, but I don't think that's how it works. Uh, like maybe he no. could be appointed s- senator in the interim, but the election's happening and he's not on the ballot. Right. There's all sorts of like weird legal things or thinking about. There's even an article yesterday about possibly delaying the election. Or Republican senators are saying now, even if he gets elected, they'll try to unseat him, which is difficult because the voters now know this information going in. But as I heard someone else make the point, and I can't remember who today, it's like, well, you know, you could just vote for the Democrat if you feel that strongly that he shouldn't be in there. Um, and I caught the tail end of something on MSNBC this afternoon, but it was on the radio, so I have no idea who the guy was. But he's a Republican operative, and they kept asking him, if you know Roy Moore is a child molester and that the other candidate is a Democrat, which one do you vote for? And he was having a really hard time with that question. It's the yellow dog um, um, next, next dilemma. Question. <laughs> next question. Well, yeah, and he kept saying, well, you can... Um, <coughs> write somebody in or you can leave a blank and they're like yeah but if you have these two people on the ballot you're saying you don't want Doug Jones to be on the ballot on the be elected that badly and he was kind of like yes yeah I mean I, mean, I think that's also, Doug Jones headed out for the KKK so that's true that hurts um, that's the state of politics for an awful lot of people and also you know the people who are in the thick of it and really really part of political machines and all the rest it's about raw power it's ideology is for a lot of them an afterthought or their ideology is so strong that uh, they just say anything to get the power to do what we want to do no matter what sort of compromises we have to make along the way right yeah i mean i think there's a lot more that I want to go into on this, but maybe we'll save it for another episode. But I was going to say really quickly, like a lot of this though that I'm looking at is familiar to me from growing up in the Southern Baptist church where, and Chad probably knows about this too. We are kind of taught constantly that the entire world is against you and that all of this stuff happening outside is a product of this kind of bad world that has it out for good people like you. And so as long as you're operating in that context, we saw, you know, Jerry Falwell do this. We've seen numerous, numerous evangelical Christians. As long as they are operating in the context of being an evangelical Christian, it's possible to just keep getting forgiven for everything on down the line because you just keep talking about it in that context. And that as long as Doug Jones is kind of outside of that, he's the evil acting in the world. And you can be as flawed as possible as long as you are flawed in a, in a narrative that makes sense to them. Well, the Baptist church that I was most part of when I was a kid was fairly apolitical. Like, they certainly didn't preach any politics at all from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was um, country, and it was mostly older people, and people get filled with the Spirit every once in a while. It didn't go quite so far as faith healing or speaking in tongues or anything, but it was um, uh, pretty rowdy. Uh, sometimes, especially for old people, uh, for it being mostly old people. And, um, you know, there was this uh, sort of theme of redemption and forgiveness and all, but there wasn't a lot of uh, direction that we were supposed to apply that to, say, Richard Nixon or, um, or whoever else on the political spectrum. Even Jake Butcher, this was up in Union County is where I went to church a lot, and that's where Jake Butcher was from. Uh, uh, his name was never really dropped at church. Uh, no politics at all in the church I went to. Well, there wasn't uh, politics really in my church uh, too much, but they talked about how the world the world will tempt you with women, the world will tempt you with drink, and the world will, bad men will try to lead you astray. But then, but if you come back to God, like if you, you know, just say a prayer and you'll be forgiven. 
Um, so was that uh, was that mostly in like youth programs or was it from the pulpit? Because I didn't uh, go to youth programs and stuff. I don't. Was, I don't even know if there were. No, like the youth programs I was in were pretty like uh, they were pretty. Um, I don't know pedestrian, but this was like more like in the main church service. Like, and usually oh, okay. most of the preachers, most of the preachers uh, were people who had. You know, were they were drunkards? Uh, they had done horrible things. They had cheated on their wives. They had, but they had been called to God. But they had been saved, and they had been called to preach. And so they knew they knew what evils were out there in the world. And, and yeah, if you uh, read the lives of the saints, um, uh, the saints all start out as just completely holy from birth. Or monsters from birth who are then redeemed. That's a really compelling story, I guess, in uh, Christianity is um, uh, the monster who's redeemed by uh, faith. Yeah, so that was a lot. So it wasn't like in, I don't know, it wasn't it wasn't explicit that uh, the Democrats are going to get you. Um, well, I think, a lot, I think we were probably like right on the edge of, as it was getting explicitly political. Yeah. Like mine wasn't political party political either because at the time most people were registered democrats there but it was culturally motivated like it was a lot i still remember like even more than abortion we would get talked to about like dungeons and dragons being bad or like rock (laughs) music yeah rock music um Um, because i remember very distinctly yes i remember very distinctly my cousins were watching mtv one time and i saw uh the police playing the um the sting police not the (laughs) <laughs> police, please. The band, no. the police. And one of them had, I think like Andy Summers had like an earring in. And I remember mm-hmm. feeling so bad for him because he was so lost. And I, I think they're playing like the most like, yeah, I remember like they were probably playing the most like anodyne police song. It was probably like uh, uh, Every Breath You Take or something. I was like, oh, this is this devil music. Um, and, you know, the biggest deal in our church was like when Amy Grant made a pop song. Like it was we, Amy, Amy's... Um, She's gone over to the world. The city, the world, the world had led her astray. Worldly right. men. Worldly men had because led her she, astray. Because she recorded like a song of Peter Cetera. So she was <laughs> lost, lost to us forever. Um, Those people but, like, used to come into my public school, actually. And I remember one of them. Peter Cetera. I, I just Brown. went to one, mostly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly I skipped those assemblies and just hung out in my art room. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, and I was allowed to do that because they were religious and so you got to opt out. But still, they were right. religious programs in public school. And, but I went to one of them and I remember the guy saying, uh, I'm living for giving the devil his due. Now, what do you think these lyrics mean? And I was like, oh, Blue Oyster Cult. He knows Blue Oyster Cult. But, <laughs> um, um, yeah, all of that stuff was, I got that in school more than I got it at the church. Because the church wasn't concerned with popular culture at all, I think. Because it was so country. Right. I got it in school at church because it was essentially the same people at both. Yeah. Which is the joy of a small town. Yeah. Yeah, I just did church in the summers with my granny. I didn't, uh, uh, back home, it was a pretty city diet of atheism. Did you go to vacation Bible school? Oh, God. Uh, Like once or twice. I think three words that should never go together. (laughs) Vacation, (laughs) Bible, or school. None of them ever in any combination. Oh, I hated vacation Bible school it was so bad. And we had, did you guys have, like, what are the flags? with the oh, American Christian, flag? There was like an the American Baptist? flag and the Christian flag. I was always very excited to, to carry the Christian flag out. Yeah. To the did you, opening did you get sing Onward Christian Soldiers? <laughs> I think we did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God. I kind of remember yeah, I Jesus Loves the Little Children. And one about a guy, who, a wee little man who climbed up in a tree and saw Jesus. Oh, uh, yeah. Somebody yes, was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a great big tree for the Lord he wanted to see. That um, Ebenezer. I just thought of a good, a good flag would be a POW slash Christian flag. Christian POW flag? Christian POW flag. I mean, we saw the PO, the Confederate POW, or I saw it. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to see if there's a... Confederate POWs. So I'm going to... 
for the Christian. Who was the guy in the tree? Was it the leprechaun, the mobile leprechaun? <laughs> could have been. Is that, was it Zacharias or Zacharias? Uh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Zacharias was the name of the mobile <laughs> leprechaun. <laughs> uh, and on that note, I think we'll wrap up uh, this week's episode of the Fall of the Gadsden Kickboxer. Yeah. A sad day for all of us. Rest in power. All right. See you guys next week. Next week. Good night. Good night. Good night.